0: Horse racing is a staple in just about every developed country on Earth, when you think about it, from the United States to Dubai to Japan. But in one fairly conspicuous first world nation, the sport may actually be vanishing. The curious case of the demise of racing and betting in Israel and what it means on a broader scale. Plus, several questions were left unanswered following the Breeders' Cup. Where do we go from here? It's all next on this edition of In the Gate.
1: They're in the gate. They're in the gate. are in the gate. They're in the gate.
0: It's a head big finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It's not exactly part of the checklist of what makes a developed nation a developed nation but it seems that horse racing is a part of the culture of most countries with advanced economies. The International Monetary Fund has a list of countries ranked by gross domestic product, and on that list is Hong Kong. Even though Hong Kong isn't really a country, it's a special administrative region of China, but it comes in at number 33 on the list. Hong Kong, of course, has a burgeoning horse racing industry as well. Right above Hong Kong on that gross domestic product list at number 32 is Israel, which by next summer will legally bring to an end betting on horse races. The sport had started in the Holy Land during British control in the 1930s. In the late 90s, an Israeli jockey club formed to stage races near Haifa in the northern part of the country. There were races at Pardes Hana every two to three weeks for a while. The last live horse race there was in 2008. But you couldn't legally bet on those races— It wasn't until 2012, four years after the closing of the live track, that betting was officially legalized in Israel. That's not unusual. Several Arab countries, including the United Arab Emirates, home of the Dubai World Cup, have live racing, but no betting. Once Israel legalized betting, revenue went from 64 million U.S. dollars in 2013, the first full year, to $462 million in 2016, according to an Israeli newspaper Haaretz, which means the land. Now, the Israel finance minister has declared that betting on horses, much less conducting live racing, as well as slot machines, will be banned by next summer. He has used the term tainted money to describe the Israeli government's cut of revenue from overseas betting, like races in England. It's worth noting that every single country above Israel on the IMF list of gross domestic product, except Taiwan, but including Indonesia, Thailand, Iran, and Nigeria, have some form of horse racing. Switzerland even stages races on ice. What's the big takeaway from Israel's shutdown of racing and betting, For that, we welcome to in the gate Paul Alster, an Israeli-based freelance journalist who covers horse racing globally and is very familiar with the situation in the Holy Land. What are the main factors leading to the shutdown of betting in general in Israel?
2: It's a very good question, particularly when you understand that here in Israel, only 20% of all sports betting is done through legal sources the state betting company. Around 80% by most estimates is through black market, mafia and other very shady sources, which made it all the more puzzling why the government would want to take away a legal betting source that is paying tax and also returning profits to the community. There's been a number of suggestions as to why that policy has been put forward. It's very difficult to read the mind of the ministers and the politicians involved. Uh, But what he wanted to do also was to remove from the state betting company's main competitor, which is the state lottery, certain uh, machines that they have in the lottery shops that are random number-generated machines that by general consent do cause people to become somewhat obsessive. So in order to remove those from the lottery company, the minister, it appears, felt he had to try and appear to be even handed and remove something from the basket of the state sports betting company. And rather than touch the major products, the soccer and the basketball, he chose to eliminate the horse racing betting, even though there was a contract in place between the Israeli government and the major international British uh, media and broadcasting and betting company, GBI, and that has been the source of a great deal of tension and legal action, uh, but unfortunately, it now is uh, 99.9% certain that before the end of July 2018, all betting on horse racing in Israel through the state betting company, the only approved betting uh, source on horse racing will be closed.
0: You know, many of the neighboring Arab countries conduct racing, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, and, and of course the United Arab Emirates, though Arabic law does not permit betting in these countries. What kind of impact does that have on Israel's decision?
2: I don't think Israel will have looked even for one moment at the regional position as regards horse racing, essentially because most people in the government don't understand horse racing They don't appreciate what myself and other enthusiasts uh, including the former European Union ambassador to Israel, uh, Ramiro Sivriano Sal, who was very supportive of our efforts to start local horse racing 10 years ago. He saw that through horse racing, a sport that is popular across uh, religions, across uh, creeds and across peoples in the region, there was a great opportunity through this sport to bring people together. And we saw that on a number of occasions at the Pardis Khanna race course where you would find horse racing being conducted um, with Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Bedouin, Druze, And even on a couple of occasions, invitations to the Palestinians to cross into Israel with their horses and compete against Israelis. So it was a wonderful social opportunity to which the government appears to have been blind for many different reasons. And so the fact that racing takes place all around us in Egypt, in Lebanon, even in Syria, Damascus used to have a functioning race course and industry. They have uh, refused to take on board the possibilities that a racing and horse breeding industry could provide, in the same way that it has in Dubai or Qatar or other neighbours in the region.
0: I don't think Pardes Hana is there anymore, or anything that looks like it. No, it's a, it's now an avocado grove. Oh gosh, um, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> You mentioned something that I had read about, that the Israeli Jockey Club, and yes, there was one, even invited something called the Palestinian Racing Association to stage mm-hmm. friendly competitions at Pardes
2: Hana in 2008. How did that mm-hmm. go? Well, I'm happy to say that I was uh, it was myself that extended the invitation on behalf of the Israeli Jockey Club. It was a wonderful event, uh, the particular day that we had the Palestinians with us. The people involved in Israeli racing cross all the political boundaries from the left of the political scale um, to the right uh, and across religions, Uh, but nobody uh, objected to an invitation being presented to the Palestinians because at the end of the day, horsemen are horsemen, we all appreciate the fantastic uh, thoroughbred horses, and in this region as well, Arabian horse racing is very popular. And we felt it would be very nice indeed, particularly in view of the fact that the ambassador from the European Union was very keen to come along and support us and present the prizes. Uh, To extend this invitation, it wasn't easy uh, to secure passes for the Palestinians to bring their horses and riders and all their entourage from places like uh, Hebron, uh, Jericho and East Jerusalem. But they came. There was a wonderful atmosphere. Um, There was even occasions where one of the Palestinian horses was ridden by an Israeli jockey who won on him, and the celebrations had to be seen to be believed. Um, It was a great moment that gave a little bit of hope that uh, regardless of all the political issues in the region, uh, there are things that the people do have in common, and those are things that are very often overlooked uh, in the news media, and horse racing is one of them. It Describe for us what it was like, not just that
0: day, but any day to attend races at Pardes Hana, the track that used to exist in Israel.
2: Well, it was an experience like no other I've ever uh, uh, had uh, the pleasure of. I'm originally from Britain, and I've raced at nearly all the British tracks, and in Ireland, and in Australia, and Singapore, all sorts of places, Sweden. But because there was no financial support For racing in Israel. It was local enthusiasts who, through their own pocket, created a race course on a piece of farmland uh, just outside of Padasana. Uh, The surface was a local red dirt, which is actually a very good dirt racing surface. Um, It was prepared by a local tractor driver. Um, The rails were made by um, a local firm who donated the running rails they managed to find a set of working starting stalls uh, that were probably 30 years old and on the day of the races we would uh, construct uh, tented villages people would come along mainly with baskets of fruit and things like that there was no alcohol served at the race course and uh, people would bet the people that were coming uh, not so much bet people would race rather but I was going to come to the point that there was no betting which meant that The spectacle of going to the races without being able to bet was something very unusual, something alien to people in North America and Europe and elsewhere, only in Dubai possibly in the Arab regions would they be familiar with this. And so that did lead, without a doubt, to some illegal betting that was going on, which we did our best to try and uh, dissuade people from. But the atmosphere as a whole was absolutely uh, terrific. I have to say the standard of the racing was very low. And I'm, I wasn't convinced that the quality of the horse care was all that it could have been, but the nucleus was there. If we had been given the budget to create a proper, properly organised and run racing industry, and we had interest from people around the globe who were prepared to leave their respective countries and come to Israel and build a racing industry, but we were never given that opportunity. You bring up an interesting point. We're talking with Israeli-based
0: journalist Paul Alster here on In The Gate. And stay with us because we'll have some unanswered questions coming out of the Breeders' Cup in just a couple of minutes. How much of the problem with staging those races was the cost of drug testing and oversight of those races?
2: It was a big problem. If, like myself, uh, where you come from a very well-regulated racing industry, you um, There is nothing worse than seeing horses that are not really fit enough to run being given uh, various drugs uh, in order to uh, take part in the races. I, along with other members of the jockey club, was very firm on this and it caused a lot of tension with some of the less knowledgeable Owners and trainers who uh, didn't understand really that horses shouldn't be running when they're not in 100% peak physical condition. And so we wanted to bring in drug testing to make sure we would be as clean as possible. But I'm sure you're aware, drug testing is quite an expensive practice uh, and without a budget. We just weren't able to put that in place. And that essentially was the final straw. When we weren't able to receive a budget from any of the government departments or the sports council, it became clear that keeping racing going was untenable if we wanted to try and create a racing industry that was clean and run properly. So we decided rather than present uh, a venue for horses who are unfit or unwell in some cases to run, we preferred to close and do without because um, horse care, uh, being genuine horse lovers, is absolutely top of our priority list. So we preferred not to continue. Now, we mentioned in our Open to
0: this segment that revenue from betting went from $64 million U.S. in 2013, that first full year it was legalized, to $462 million in 2016. So clearly there are people who want to bet. And we referenced this a little earlier, but what thought has the Israeli government given to that money moving to underground betting where the state gets no cut? Well, Barry,
2: I think you put your finger on it, really. This is a major problem. Um, By flying this flag in a populist measure, the the economic minister, Kahlon, has uh, achieved what he believes is some sort of a victory. It's uh, a victory based on misinformation and a lack of foresight. And I believe that now that people have got to know horse racing, I've been very proud to be able to train the broadcasters who have presented racing in Israel. I myself have had a television show here on one of the main sports channels broadcasting the major British racing and it's become popular. It's hard to believe that people will suddenly forget that horse racing ever existed. And as I mentioned earlier, with 80% of the sports betting market already in the hands of some rather unsavory uh, organizations and characters, you can only expect that the money that has uh, up until now uh, gone through official channels, through the official state betting company, has been taxed and, as I mentioned, has returned some uh, very good sums to help promote Different sports in Israel, from soccer and basketball to judo and swimming and cycling, um, that money is now going to go somewhere, and it's very hard to believe that at least a certain amount of it won't be going into the underworld, black marketiers' uh, pockets, and of course they not only involve themselves in horse racing but uh, a number of other very very uh, not only in betting but also a number of very unsavory activities as well. So the government essentially is strengthening the hand of mafia and underworld figures by not continuing and even developing sports betting opportunities through legal channels with the sports betting board. And it's very, very hard to understand the logic in the decision they've taken.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, here in the United States, as you probably know, gambling was almost completely outlawed by the early part of the 20th century. And that, of course, gave rise to organized crime. And then in 1931, I believe, the state of Nevada legalized most forms of gambling, and Las Vegas was built by these organized crime figures like Bugsy Siegel and such. You would think that Israel's future is probably headed in that direction. Now, there is, as you also mentioned, been an organization in the Holy Land called the Israeli Sports Betting
2: Board. What is the future of that group? Well, the Israeli Sports Betting Board is the government-run authority that is responsible for betting on sports. And as I mentioned, the majority of their income comes from betting on uh, football, as you call it in the North America, soccer, uh, and also uh, basketball, which is a major sport here in Israel. There's no doubt that the Israel Sports Betting Board will be impacted by the loss of horse racing because it has contributed a a very uh, significant um, chunk of their uh, income, and I think the uh, projections were for it to be an ever increasing share of the legal sports betting market. So it's going to impact them. I would also add, as well, Barry, that as I mentioned, uh, GBI, who was the partner of the Israel Sports Betting Board, was putting the uh, betting slips through to the British and Irish tote pools the pool betting systems in Britain and Ireland and my understanding speaking to people in Britain and Ireland is that Israel out of the forty or so countries that were betting into that those pools had become one of the two or three biggest contributors outside of the British and Irish themselves so those two uh, betting authorities will also see a reduction in their income as a result of Israeli betting having been taken out of the uh, legal basket.
0: One of the few developed nations that is actually doing away with horse racing rather than welcoming it. Paul Alster, thank you so much
2: for a few minutes. It's been my pleasure, Barry. Thanks very much for your interest.
0: We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, the winner of the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf, Mendelssohn, may be headed to the Kentucky Derby. How on earth would he get there? We'll discuss that and other questions coming out of the Breeders' Cup when we come back. Gunrunner along the inside, collected right up alongside, it looks like we're ready for a classic in the classic, and eight of a mile to go, Gunrunner digs deep, he finds more collected, West Coast running on third, but Gunrunner the advantage, and Gunrunner is starting to draw of the final 16, and Gunrunner, a superb performance in the classic, Gunrunner won it by about two and a half in the end. Well, we know that one question coming out of the Breeders' Cup has been answered. Gunrunner's victory in the Classic pretty much solidifies him as Horse of the Year. Four straight Grade 1 wins, including the Breeders' Cup Classic. But there are so many other questions, at least that I have, coming out of these races. So to get answers, there's no better person to bring onto the show to bring back than the dean of all horse racing journalists, at least since the death of Joe Hirsch, the great Joe Hirsch, may you rest in peace, and that is our friend Gary West. So, Gary... Who is the three-year-old champion this year? Oh, my. Well,
1: well, that's a great question. And that's one of many questions
0: that the uh,
1: Breeders' Cup uh, left unanswered. I'm guessing it's going to be West Coast. But uh, an argument can be made for others. And and that's true in many divisions. You know, we, we saw some exciting and exhilarating finishes. We saw some encouraging, even inspiring performances, but also some frustrating outcomes at this Breeders' Cup. Largely because the main track was, um, I, I think to be honest, I think it was biased. The main track was, was not entirely fair to all running styles and, and all places on, on, on the surface, uh, um, all paths on the surface. There was Not one favorite that won a race on the main track. And I I think if you take all of those races and run them again next month at, say, Belmont Park or Santa Anita or Churchill Downs, you would have perhaps only one repeat winner. And that would, I'm guessing, be Gunrunner, who was just sensational in the classic. So you're quite right. There are are many questions left unanswered by the Breeders' Cup. Who was the three-year-old champion? Who was the two-year-old champion? Good Magic, who obviously was outstanding and winning the juvenile, or Bolt Doro, who was sensational and whose two stakes wins but had a very wide trip and in, in the juvenile and finish third. I don't know. That's going to be up to the breeders, I mean, the uh, the voters to decide, and I think that one will especially be close.
0: And it brings up this question that I've never t- quite understood, and I try not to show an East Coast bias, even though I'm based on the East Coast, and that is Del Mar, for both of its regular meets, the traditional summer meet and now the one in November, doesn't usually attract a lot of shippers from out of town. You don't see horses from the East going out to run the Pacific Classic and races like that. And so it's an unknown for a lot of trainers and horsemen. I wonder, A, if this Breeders' Cup is going to change that, and if not, do you think the breeders would have a predisposition about maybe not going back to Del Mar.
1: Well, it, it, the Breeders' Cup, and despite some bizarre outcomes, you know, we had a 66-to-1 shot winning a bar of gold, 30 to one shot winning. But despite some bizarre outcomes, the Beater's Cup was a success. They they had a, a record handle at Del Mar. Uh, the attendance was, what, over 70,000 for the two days, and it would have been much more, but but they, they limited uh, attendance to, I think, what, 37,000 each day because Del Mar is not a very big track. I, I think they would be inclined, given those successes, take the Beater's Cup back to Del Mar and Despite again some bizarre outcomes the the East Coast horses, for the most part. Uh, did, did fairly well. Caledonia Road won the Juvenile Phillies. Uh, good Magic and East Coast Horse won. Um, world Approval, of course, was one of the stars of the Breeders' Cup, winning the mile. And he's raced in, in the East Coast and, and as well as uh, Kentucky. So uh, horses from, from various um, points on the compass came here to win. Uh, I don't think that's a problem, but uh, they, they do need to ensure that uh, every horse has as a chance to win. And I don't think that was the case in this Breeders' Cup because the inside part of the oval was not the place to be and speed just did not hold. We had one horse in two days that uh, led throughout the win and that, of course, again, was Gunrunner who defied the the, the bias of the racing surface and, and just ran a tremendous race.
0: And of the 13 races run... Only two were won by favorites, and one of those was Mendelssohn.
2: Mendelssohn hooks off the rail, and here comes Mendelssohn with a powerful run now. Down the center of the track, uptake domain is running on gamely as well, and voting control comes late, but Mendelssohn in full flight for the wire, and Mendelssohn will go all the way. Mendelssohn and Ryan Moore have won it.
0: Now, trainer Aiden O'Brien says that his goal with Mendelssohn, even though we ran a turf race, was the Kentucky Derby. And, you know, when you've won 27 grade one races around the world, I can understand you're getting a little confident, even though the Derby's run on dirt. But my question to you is, how would he do that? I know there are qualifying races in Europe, these one mile turf races. I don't really know much about them. So he has to run qualifying races to earn enough points. How is he going to do that?
1: Well, I, I don't know what Aiden has in mind. There are ways to get into the Derby from Europe, but in order to prepare him properly, I would, I would expect him to ship over early, maybe in March, and give him a race here. Mendelssohn obviously is a very good horse, but he does look to me like, like he's more suited for, for the turf. And, you know, we'll just have to see that when you've had as much success as, as Aidan O'Brien has had, you have to look out there on the horizon and and wonder, you know, what's in the future now and, and what goals are there left? And certainly the Kentucky Derby is one of them.
0: Well, here's the thing. I don't know exactly when european horses begin training and really start racing in earnest where the the clock is obviously we know here in the states you can run in florida in california and train all through the year so is he going to train him over there or do you think he would ship the horse over here to train
1: well i would i would guess he'd want to keep him close at hand as as long as he could but you're right. That's the big advantage in Florida, isn't it? There's no interruption by weather to the training and the, and the preparation. But uh, Mendelssohn as you know, a son of scat daddy, there's no reason to think he wouldn't make the successful transition to the dirt. But uh, at this point, he looks like a turf horse. Scat daddy, of course, is a sire winners on both surfaces, but I, I think he's probably a better turf sire than a main track sire. But I, obviously can't presume to speak for Aiden O'Brien but I, I would guess he would keep him close at hand until until he had to come over here
0: very interesting more grist for the mill as always Gary West a pleasure to be with you have a wonderful holiday season
1: you too Barry my pleasure indeed take care
0: our thanks to Gary West and to Paul Alster we like to think of sports as being a meritocracy where the only defining characteristic is skill but now comes an accusation that sounds all too familiar and which, if true, would leave me feeling ill. It comes from a female British jockey named Gay Kelloway, who says a prominent male compatriot cornered her once in a changing room and propositioned her to think it would work makes him an idiot. One thing I did not realize, in the world of British racing, of hired help, women are 70%. Who knows how many others have experienced this pain? The female jockey story might not even make a dent. Of course, this kind of story is playing out on a daily basis, with reports that do not seem to be fake news. There simply is no place for any type of this behavior. There is no room for existential views. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.